This is uh, September 22nd, uh, fall equinox, and uh, we have our fans on, and I'm going to have to try to speak more loudly than usual uh, to compensate for the noise of the fans. I'm going to uh, read from an article from last year, February of last year. Uh, this is... Uh, a review, a book review in the New York Times. Um, it's, a, it's a review of uh, a book by the title of Enlightenment Now, which is uh, was written by Steven Pinker. But the review itself was was written by Ross Duthot or Dutat. Uh, I don't know whether that th in the middle mm -hmm. is uh, pronounced the way. Uh, Greta Thunberg's name is pronounced in Sweden, Thunberg, even though it starts with a TH, or whether he pronounces the TH. Anyway, I don't think he would mind if we mispronounce his name. I don't, <laughs> and I'm used to it, <laughs> my own name. <clears throat> uh, and this article is called The Edges of Reason. And uh, just to, his writing, his writing style is dense. His, his, uh, uh, he uses some really um, heavy, abstract words, and his, his uh, and they're pretty packed together. So there'll be times when I'll back up and kind of paraphrase uh, what he's saying because it's always harder. I believe it's always harder in this this kind of prose. It's harder for us, for the listener, to understand it when it's being read aloud than it is if you're you're reading it off the page and you can take it in that way. It's, a little easier to assimilate, even with this dense uh, uh, writing. But there's a lot here that's that's uh, strikes right at the heart of of uh, two things: reason and experience. So he begins. I'll just paraphrase this. He begins by uh, saying that he, uh, as a child, uh, he see there seemed to be two worlds to him. There was the one that he uh, thought was normal, that is, where people had professional degrees and followed their doctor's instructions strictly and carefully. Um, in other words, a world ruled by uh, solid-seeming secular and liberal consensus about what was scientific, what was certain, and what was true. And then he said... There were the other stranger worlds, which we explored for reasons of chronic illness, religious interest, and some of the roving curiosity that defined my parents' generation at its best. Sounds like he's referring to boom, the boom, baby boom generation, or where uh, there was so much uh, that so much interest in um, non-empirical. Uh, things, practices and from, from Asia and other places. And then referring to this other so-called stranger world, he said first was the world of charismatic religion, where people sought healing and spoke in tongues and prophesied, experiencing the divine as palpably as people in the secular world experienced, say, this newspaper's pronouncements. And second, 
the second part of this stranger world was the world of alternative medicine and what was then still described disparagingly as health food. He says the shabby little pre-Whole Foods stores selling organic vegetables and carob and tofu, the chiropractic offices smelling of essential oils, the vegetarian restaurants with New Age bookstores umbilically attached. (laughs) And then he said, and then he gets to Pinker's book, I found myself thinking about those childhood worlds while browsing Steven Pinker's Enlightenment Now, a big book by a big thinker written to defend reason against its enemies. Be they the populist right, the identity politics left, or a larger crew of historical villains from Rousseau to Nietzsche, whom Pinker blames for impeding civilization's march toward ever greater wealth and health and peace. It's interesting here, he, he, um, he, he includes the populist right and the identity politics left uh, in the same camp uh, that he says Pinker sees as, as enemies. His book is at once a reminder of the material progress modern science and commerce have delivered and a propagandistic treatment of the past. Pinker defends a selectively edited enlightenment. Here it's capital E, enlightenment, referring to that, that time in the, after the Middle Ages, 1700s, I guess, more or less, uh, where uh, science and the scientific method Uh, came into such favor. Pinker defends a selectively edited enlightenment that conforms neatly to his style of liberal politics. And then he puts in parentheses after liberal politics (coughs) stridently secular mildly libertarian anti-PC close paren and and he absolves his idealized version of the modern project of all imperial and eugenic and centralizing cruelties and all the genocides and persecutions justified in reason's name. Just to, just to break that down a little bit, um, he gives a pass to uh, his, uh, what he sees in two glowing terms uh, of... Uh, what, what too often has become uh, imperial and centralizing central government cruelties and just genocides and persecutions justified in reason's name. Reason here is always with a capital R. But then he says, now that he got some licks in there, he says, but historical critiques of enlightenment now are available elsewhere. I'm more interested in the bright line that Pinker draws between the empirical spirit of science and the unreasoning obscurantism he suggests otherwise prevails. I, uh, 
obscurantism is, is one of these words that I kind of know what it means, but I, it sent me running to the dictionary. And um, for people who may not be crystal clear about the meaning, ob- obscurantism is a, the dictionary says, is opposition to human progress and enlightenment. And the second definition is being deliberately obscure or vague. So, again, to to paraphrase, uh, his 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 central interest here in this review, this book review, is that Pinker uh, claims to be able to segregate, to draw this bright line uh, between imp- uh, empirical science and what uh, would otherwise be this uh, dark uh, uh, enemy of reason. And now, he, here's where he comes in. I'm reasonably confident that both, the, both of the stranger worlds of my childhood, the prayer services and macrobiotic diet camps, fit his definition of the anti-empirical dark. And therein, this was interesting, <laughs> I, I think of Ross Dutat as a, as a leaning conservative, and to hear that he was raised uh, with some exposure to macrobiotic diet camps uh, was a surprise. But then, you know, uh, we often will just just go the opposite direction of, of our, our upbringing from our parents. Uh, one of the one of the uh, what springs to mind as an example is uh, David Brooks, who is considered more or less conservative, one of the more conservative, right of center, uh, somewhat conservative uh, commentator, uh, columnist. Uh, I think he's been edging farther to the to the left. Um, even I think there's even some some Buddhistic qualities that are coming through now. I think he's having a kind of a rebirth. But uh, that aside, uh, Gerardo Sensei, uh, one of my uh, teacher disciples uh, and the leader of the uh, Mexico City's uh, Casa Zen, uh, Gerardo Sensei knew David Brooks when he was a kid running around in shorts in, uh, on his parents, on, on Gerardo's parents' property. And uh, what Gerardo told me was that uh, David Brooks' parents were Marxists here in the United States during the McCarthy era, and they fled to Mexico to escape the, uh, the uh, McCarthyist persecutions. And uh, little Davy uh, then seems to have gone the other direction. At least he did for a while. Um, anyway, so back to Russ Dutat. Um, he went to these macrobiotic diet camps, um, and and he says, and therein he says lies the oddity. If you actually experience these worlds and contrasted them with the normal world of high-minded liberal secularism. It was the charismatic religious, that's a hyphenated word, 
It was the charismatic, religious, and health food regions where people were the most personally empirical, least inclined to meekly submit to authority, and most determined to reason independently and keep trying things until they worked. It's a very interesting uh, angle that he's taking on this, uh, making us re reframe the whole thing. Um, so, and, and here, the word empirical, I also wanted to be clear on that, as far as you can be with a dictionary. Empiricism is the search by the search for knowledge by observation and experiment. Observation and experiment. And then under that definition, there are two, there's an A and a B. A is a disregarding of scientific methods and relying solely on experience. And the second B is quackery. So a search for knowledge by observation and experiment. And, and, and that's where, I think, where empiricism and experience come together. And, and that's the point that he develops here. Um, that, that, in a way, the ultimate empiricism is to look to your own experience and that, of course, has, has, has hazards um, in terms of drawing conclusions. But let's let him develop this point. He says that's because those worlds, that is, the worlds of uh, religious and health food, those worlds' inhabitants were a self-selected population who had either experienced something transformative or suffered something debilitating and been told by the official consensus, we have no answers for you yet. And so they ventured out in search of answers in an intensely experimental spirit, trying to see what people or prayers or situations recreated the initial religious experience, trying to discern what remedy or diet or program might actually make them feel not just alive, but well. When I read this, uh, this reference to an initial religious experience, um, I was reminded of a phenomenon that I'd like to think is not rare, where uh, children have some kind of peak experience, some something as children, even even very young children. And I've heard stories. I've had had my own one of those, um, where something opened, and because they're children, they had no way of of understanding it through words, and yet it affected us. For life, or or not, it's sometimes these these uh, these rapturous experiences as, you know, as in childhood uh, fade from our memory, and um, we kind of just tuck them away somewhere and go on with our busy lives. But 
uh, I think maybe no small number of people who come to Zen uh, may have had such experiences um, that uh, revealed something remarkable that can't be explained, can't be tested empirically, but nonetheless have great, great power uh, to to put oneself on the path of, of, of searching. This, um, we're told in the text, the old text, this is what uh, drove uh, Siddhartha when he was sitting beneath the Bodhi tree, um, ramping up to his great enlightenment, that he had this memory of of, uh, as, a, as a child of sitting under a rose apple tree and watching his father and the other noblemen plowing the fields and uh, not to go into the description entirely but something turned in little Siddhartha something shifted and, and then you know called him in for dinner he went to bed but sitting there at the age of 29 under the rose apple tree, uh, or 35, I guess, age 35, uh, it came back to him and inspired him to press on in his search because he, he, he knew he had touched something. As a child, he had touched something that was beyond any explanations, any proofs, and yet was the most remarkable thing any human being can experience. To this day, when I hear uh, a propeller plane droning overhead, just slowly passing through the airspace above us, has to be a propeller plane. Um, I'm swept away with with this. It's not even a memory. It's it's something much deeper, deeper in my tissues. I was uh, about seven or six or seven years old when I ha- I won't go into it. I think I once wrote about it briefly in Zenbo, but um, I had this this opening experience, uh, and I and it happened while a plane, a propeller plane, was going over overhead. And uh, after all these years, especially in Sashin, when, when I'm not busy, 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 but in Sashin, when a plane goes overhead, it's, it just gives me the chills. And then also, the, uh, aside from the re- religious experience, um, the, the testing, the individual testing he's referring to of a, of a, di- a remedy or a diet or a uh, some kind of a regimen uh, that they want to want to try. I'm wondering if this columnist uh, had did have some some um, d- serious diagnosis of a serious illness, and uh, it has made him uh, want to uh, experiment with with things that not non mainstream remedies and so forth. says such individual experimentation is not the same thing as the scientific method. It lacks the proving tests of replication and consensus. 
the two approaches are more closely related than today's apostles of scientism often suggest. Scientism, I meant to look that up too, but basically it means, um, uh, implies a, a, a too um, strict belief in scientific method as the sole, the governing criterion of truth. So these <clears throat> these two approaches again the the religious experimentation and the health experimentation said they proceed from the same intense curiosity, the same desire for understanding through experience, and personalized experimentation can be the only way to be empirical when your subject is the strange nexus of the self. It's making a very strong. Taking a strong position here, it's the only way. Personalized ex experimentation is the only way to really come to a, a, a true understanding of the self and its processes. There's a famous uh, saying by the Buddha. Uh, it's usually brought up in terms of faith, uh, sometimes as a corrective to those who think you should uh, simply take at, uh, as gospel whatever your teacher says. Uh, this is, I think, it's fair to say this is a stronger position that is uh, teacher worship. It's a stronger position in Tibetan Buddhism than in Zen. Uh, and certainly even in Zen, it's stronger in, in uh, Japan and China than it is here. Um, I've often heard in conferences from uh, American Tibetan Buddhist practitioners that uh, that to criticize the guru, the uh, the Lama or the Rinpoche, to criticize him or her uh, consigns you to hell. It's not Zen. This is what the Buddha said, or is purported to have said 2,500 years ago. Don't believe solely because the written testimony of some ancient wise man has shown you. And don't believe anything on the mere authority of your teachers or priests. What you should accept as true and as the guide to your life is whatever agrees with your own reason and your own experience after thorough investigation and whatever is helpful both to your own well-being and that of other living beings. Now what's interesting here is he, he couples reason and experience. Reason with a capital R. At least this is the translation. You know, these are everything from these other countries, these Buddhist countries are translations. So um, we can take it with a grain of salt. Did he really mean reason the way Steven Pinker and Ross Dutat are referring to reason, capital R, reason? Um, Let's say yes for now, and yet, and and yet, the Buddha is saying, uh, whatever agrees with your own reason and your own experience, he, they're not at odds to the Buddha, at least according to this this quote. I think the important thing is reason and is is capital R, which we may say is 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 common sense, your own um, intuitive. 
good sense. The, the, the kind of intuition that operates sometimes where we meet someone uh, and we, we can sense whether there's something unwholesome about the person, something that is not to be entirely trusted. Uh, that's how I read what that means. But then your own experience after thorough investigation, this is what brings us to Zen practice, the actual practice of Zen. Because that's what we're doing. When we're sitting, when we're doing Zazen, we are testing, we're looking. What's there? What do we see? The German philosopher Wittgenstein said, don't think, look. It's, uh, these are words that we've often quoted in the Zendo. Don't think, look. Look and see what's going on. Look what happens, what arises in the mind, what, what, what's going on when you're counting or following the breath or working on a koan. And that, I think, is what what Dutop, this columnist, is um, respecting, is that process where where religion, religious experience, is not really um, just superstition based on beliefs. Zen practice is not based on a belief. It's it's a it's 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 a practice that you do you do it and you see if it works. That's I think what the Buddha is talking about. It's a, it, it is a kind of experimentation. Of course, you can't just do it for a day or two or a week or two. You have to persist at it and and see what comes out of it. But you don't have to believe in. Anything. I mean, really, the only thing you have to believe is that the sitting is going to work for you. Otherwise, you're not going to sit. So you have to have some trust in the process. Again, that last sentence, this, this, these approaches to religion, and, and that is direct experience of religion, not just uh, scripture and so forth, but just the actual living a religious experience, spiritual experience, um, spiritual work, that and uh, the experimenting with health and uh, things like that, that uh, they proceed from curiosity. Socrates said it so well. All wisdom comes from wonder. Wonder. Wonder what will happen if I if I extend my sitting this morning from twenty minutes to twenty five minutes. Wonder what will happen if I if I shift into a posture that is a little little less comfortable and easy. I wonder what will happen if I sit a little longer. If I if I um, push a little harder uh, to avoid getting drawn into my thoughts. 
I think people who who come to Zen to a Zen center uh, that is that is a Buddhist Zen center, and think most are most Zen centers are still Buddhist. It may not be true in ten or twenty or fifty years, but uh, they're called upon to come with the same mind of openness. That's really what curiosity is and wonder. It's openness to give it a try. And not just with the sitting. I think for some of us uh, that we stumble on the devotional elements as as minor a key as they are in Zen, unlike, say, Tibetan Buddhism, uh, to give them a try. So, for example, bowing, uh, doing prostrations, the way we we did, uh, well, I guess the way I did this morning alone at the altar, but... Um, even though these things don't make sense to us when we first come, to uh, see what might come of it—not just once or twice, but doing it over and over again. This is this is my own experience of resisting those things. I had had no no religious upbringing at all, and I just had no use for religion. But boy, I had a use for the sitting, and uh, and. When I started here, of course, you want to sit with others and have that kind of uh, reinforcement, that support of others. Then part of it is uh, doing some some bowing, some chanting. We did the chanting this morning uh, to people who are new here this morning. They may have, might, have, might have struck them as weird. Other people sometimes they find to their amazement that it brings tears to their eyes. This is this is the mis- the mystery, the mysterious kind of world that uh, I think the columnist here is referring to, is getting beyond our comfort zone and being willing to just stay with it for a while. I once read a book called Zen in the Bible, uh, in which the author uh, made a uh, described a difference between Asians and Westerners that I think uh, really has held up in the 30 years since I read this book. Um, and that is this. This was a, uh, an Asian an Asian writer, uh, author. He said in, in Asia, especially East Asia, the Confucian countries, China, Japan, and Korea, uh, one is willing to do the practice, whatever, you know, whether it's sitting or, or chanting or whatever, one is willing to do it without knowing why. And, and that rests on a, a, a deep faith in tradition that, that anything that has been around for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years has worked out a lot of, worked through a lot of things and become refined and refined and uh, and just stood the test of time. So there's got to be something, something very practical and, uh, and a real intelligence behind anything that's gone on that long. And so you do it and you do it and you do it and, and trust that you'll start to get it. I guess we have this 
sort of trivial way we say fake it till you make it um, a little like that where you don't have to be you know enthralled with doing chanting uh, in order to stick with it for a while and then sticking with it uh, then can reveal why it's been done for many centuries even though there's nothing logical about it we have to go beyond the logical mind we're not going to get anywhere as long as we cling to logic and and reason and then by contrast we westerners are more likely to want to know why why should i do why should i chant what what what's the point of it give tell me what what does it mean why am i doing it all right that's who we are that's that's westerners but here we are, we're, we're straddling these two, two worlds with this Asian, uh, originally Asian, historically Asian tradition. There's nothing strictly Asian about the, uh, the essence of Zen practice. It's beyond any culture. Uh, but here we are, we're, we're, we're continuing uh, Zen practice as it's been practiced over, over time. And uh, what might we find if we just keep, if we just do it? Do it the way it's been done all this time. Well, some people will say, no thanks. It's, uh, it just seems too weird to me, or whatever they might think. Uh, and those people aren't suited to, to this. Others are all in, for, all in, and then a lot of people maybe are somewhere in between. They want to, all right, I'll give it a try, uh, see what's, what, where it takes me. Um, and this is just a matter of one's individual karma, one's affinity with the practice. He continues, every human life is, in this sense, a science experiment, and how we choose to react when our assumptions are tested defines the real scope of our curiosity. Okay, that you can apply to what I just said. How do we react uh, if our assumptions are um, we're opposed to ritual. We see no point in ritual. How do we react when we're in a situation where that's we're called to participate in a ritual? This te- this defines the real scope of our curiosity. If you refuse, and he goes back to uh, illness. If you refuse any non-FDA blessed treatment for chronic illness, because there's no controlled study proving that it works or you have a religious experience and preemptively dismiss it as an illusion without seeing what happens if you pray, you may be many things, but you are really not much of an empiricist. Which is why in many instances, the interests that Pinker dismisses as irrational hugger-mugger, everything from astrology to spiritualism, have tended to strengthen during periods of real scientific ferment. It's why Isaac Newton loved alchemy. He also uh, was uh, knowledgeable in astrology. Um, Isaac Newton is widely regarded with uh, with Einstein as uh, as one two, the two greatest scientists of all time. And yet, when Isaac, when someone challenged Isaac Newton about his interest in, a, in, a, in a astrology, he uh, he said, "I have studied it, sir. You have not." It's so easy 
with newspaper astrology to just hold your nose and dismiss it all as nonsense. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> but, uh, which I do also, newspaper astrology is nonsense because, <clears throat> sidebar here, because it's just based on your sun sign and the sun sign is just a fragment of what really is considered in astrology. Okay, back to the article. It's why Isaac Newton loved alchemy and the Victorians loved seances. It's why charismatic Christianity has spread very naturally with economic development in Africa and Latin America and why the space age coincided with the spread of all those health food stores. It's not, he says, some might might dispute this, it's not that there's some quantum of unreason that needs an outlet when reason's power grows. Rather, it's that when people in societies are genuinely curious, they are very reasonably curious about everything, including things happening in their bodies and their consciousness and more speculative realms. Recently, I ran across some words I don't remember. Only a closed mind is certain. I, I, I've long felt that there's nothing I entirely disbelieve in, in any absolute sense. Like, uh, here, take an example, ghosts. I think uh, once or twice in my life, someone has said, do you believe in ghosts? Well, you know, not really, I don't really believe in them, but I don't entirely disbelieve in them either, because how would I know? And, and also, often these things devolve into semantics. Uh, do I believe in a, in a ghost that looks like Casper the ghost? Um, and <laughs> eh, not really. Um, oh, here, yeah, here's something from my storehouse consciousness. Uh, uh, Sante Paroma and Kanya uh, Odland, uh, the two Roshis in charge of my, my Dharma heirs in Sweden, um, they heard about this haunted house in Sweden um, where if you could spend the night, uh, well, they'd give you a certificate. <laughs> if, if you could... <laughs> They, they, you, 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 they'd send you away with the certificate you could put, but um, so you had to make it through the night. So they, being open and experimental and uh, experiential, they said, "Hey, let's go give it a try." So they drove, I don't know, a couple hundred miles up into Sweden, and they put up for the night. And um, uh, Sante Roshi had, uh, slept soundly through the whole night, <laughs> but. Uh, but Kanya Roshi uh, described uh, an experience that she woke up to in the middle of the night. Um, she said she wasn't frightened, it's probably because she'd done, you know, 50 sashins at that point, and, and you see through the, the experience of sashin, you see everything as just your own mind, or just 
forms, phenomena that come and go. But she saw some figure, a vague figure, light, maybe it was more of a light, kind of a light um, at the end, of her, at the foot of her bed. Um, so who knows about these things? Why rule them out? Why do we have to take a stance of believing or not believing? Which is why if Pinker and other he just, last paragraph, if why if Pinker and others are genuinely worried about a waning appreciation of the inquiring scientific spirit, they could, should consider the possibility that some of their own smug secular certainties might be part of the problem that they might indeed be stifling the more comprehensive kind of curiosity upon which the scientific enterprise ultimately depends. Yeah, I, I told the story yesterday of Roshi Kaplo having been so such a smug atheist in his youth. Um, even atheism is, is claiming to know something that we can't possibly know. It's kind of a religion of its own. Uh, talk about um, only the closed mind is certain um, as, as, as compared to agnosticism but uh, he was very he, uh, not everyone may know this but Roshi Kaplow was the founder and first president of his high school's atheist society and then he landed in Nuremberg the Nuremberg trials and he was pushed beyond anything he could process through his reasoning secular mind and so here we are we'll stop now and recite the four vows Thank you.